I think my most sensible course would be to introduce all three of our speakers at one time and then get, get, on, with the, get on with the real work of the forum. We, we're very fortunate to have three very interesting speakers today. Uh, I'm going to move in, in, in the direction of the folks who are closest to me from this side of the table first. Thomas W. Malone is the Patrick J. McGovern Professor of Management at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He's the founder and the director of the MIT Center for Collective Intelligence and the author of a book that deals with collective intelligence in certain ways called The Future of Work. He's published over 75 articles, research papers, book chapters, and is an inventor with 11 patents. Next, Alex Sandy Pentland is the Toshiba Professor of Media Arts and Sciences at MIT and is the director of the Media Lab's Human Dynamics Research Program. He's the founder of more than a dozen companies, research organizations, and academic communities, and is currently the founder and faculty director of MIT's Legatum Center for Development and Entrepreneurship. Finally, Karim Lakhani is an assistant professor in the Technology and Operations Management Unit at the Harvard Business School where he studies distributed innovation systems and the movement of innovative activity to the edges of organizations and into communities. Lakhani earned his PhD in management from MIT in 2006. So we're happy to have him return to his home ground. I'd like to begin by asking Tom Malone to kick the discourse off by giving us a kind of uh, overview of the whole category of collective intelligence, and then from then we will we'll then proceed to a, uh, a conversation in which each of the panelists will will uh, describe their own work and their own uh, 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 research operations concerned with collective intelligence. Then we'll turn to certain other questions. Tom. Thank you. So actually, I want to start by seconding something that uh, David just said in his introductory remarks. Actually, two things about. Uh, involving or taking advantage of the intelligence of the audience and also the benefits of a literate citizenry. You didn't explicitly say it when you were talking about those things, but I think those two things are precisely what collective intelligence is about. That is, uh, I think one of the, the goals of this field would be to help understand better how to take advantage of all the intelligence and knowledge of all the bodies in this room, not just the ones that happen to be sitting in the front of the room. And part of how that happens is, is by conversations among what you might call uh, a literate citizenry. So to, to give a kind of overview of what is collective intelligence in the first place, let me start with the definition I like best for collective intelligence, which is a very broad definition. I define collective intelligence as groups of individuals doing things collectively that seem intelligent. Now, the use of the word seem there uh, is like the definition, the Supreme Court in the US, the US Supreme Court's definition of pornography. That is, you know it when you see it. It's hard to give a kind of formal, precise definition of either intelligence or pornography, but for the most part, uh, we have a general sense of what is and what isn't that. Now, with that broad definition, it's clear that collective intelligence has been around for a very long time. It's been around at least as long as humans have because human families, human countries, armies, countries, 
all sorts of groups of humans <coughs> exhibit varying degrees of collective intelligence when they act together. It's also important to realize, by the way, that they sometimes exhibit collective stupidity as well. And I think one of the most important issues for this field to deal with is how to recognize the differences in the <coughs> conditions that lead to collective intelligence versus collective stupidity. So in that sense, therefore, collective intelligence has been around for a long time. But in the last few years, there have been some very interesting examples of a new kind of collective intelligence. One of my favorite examples of that is Google. Now, by, by Google here, I don't just mean Google's technology or even just Google the company. I mean the entire system of which Google is a part, the system that includes millions of people all over the world creating web pages, linking those web pages to each other, and the Google technology that harvests all that knowledge and gives us amazingly intelligent answers to the questions we type <coughs> in to the Google search bar. That, I think, is a, a, an amazing example of collective intelligence, intelligence that doesn't depend just on computers or just on people, but on the combination of literally thousands of each. And it's an example of a kind of intelligence that never existed on our planet before. There was never anything like, in a certain sense, never anything as intelligent as the Google system I just described. Now, at the opposite extreme of technology, I would say that Wikipedia is also an excellent example of collective intelligence. In the case of Wikipedia, what's amazing is not the technology itself. I mean, the technology is nice. It's a kind of modern, uh, very robust wiki software tool. But what's really amazing, I think, about Wikipedia is not the technology. It's the organizational design. What I think is really amazing about Wikipedia is that they have invented an organizational structure, an organizational design that lets thousands of people all over the world collectively create a very large and very high quality intellectual product with almost no centralized control. And by the way, with almost all of those people being volunteers they're not even being paid for what they're doing. To me, that is a, a truly amazing invention of an organizational design, not of a technology. So I think that Google and Wikipedia and other things like Innocentive and other things that you'll hear more about in a few minutes, I think those things are just the beginning. <coughs> I think they're just the beginning of whole new classes of intelligent entities that we are going to see more and more of over the coming decades on our planet. And if we want to try to predict or understand or take advantage of all those things that are happening, I think we need to understand the possibilities at a much deeper level than we do so far. That's the goal of our Center for Collective Intelligence. In fact, the core research question that we pose for ourselves and that I think in a sense lies at the heart of this whole field is the following. How can people and computers be connected so that collectively 
they act more intelligently than any person, group, or computer has ever done before. How can we connect them so that they're smarter than anything that's ever existed on the planet before? Now, in a way, that question is analogous to what you might think of as the core question in the field of artificial intelligence. The core question in the field of artificial intelligence, you could say, is how can we design computers that are as intelligent or maybe more intelligent than humans? That's a question that is certainly interesting, an important question, one to which huge amounts of resources have been devoted for decades with some success, but I think with less success than many people in that field or outside of it would have hoped for or expected. What I would suggest today is that the question I've just outlined, the, question, the core question of collective intelligence, is an important and severely understudied question. It's not a replacement for the artificial intelligence question because it's still useful to make computers as intelligent as we can make them. But I think we've spent way too little time and way too few resources trying to understand how to take advantage of both computers and people <coughs> at the same time. If you're an artificial intelligence researcher and you write a program to solve a problem and if a person helps to come up with the solution, that's kind of cheating. But why should that have to be cheating? Why shouldn't we take as much advantage as possible of the smart things humans can do and at the same time take as much advantage of possible of the smart things computers can do and put them together in ways that let us do things that are smarter than anything could ever do? So that, I think, is the core question of the whole field of collective intelligence. And I think now we're about to hear some more examples from the other two panelists, and I'll tell you some more from our work in the center as well about what that might mean. Right, Sandy. Okay. Real-time management here. I can, I can testify that Sandy was preparing his slides as we were sitting. Are they ready? <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I finished just as you finished. Can we, but we have to get them on the screen. Real-time uh, real preparation. So um, I want to start off with something that, that is old-fashioned <laughs> in the world of collective intelligence, which is we as humans have for millennia gotten together in groups because groups are supposed to make us more intelligent, right? Uh, that's the, the ostensible motivation. But we also know that when you get people together in groups, you get lots of problems. You get polarization, you get groupthink, you get things like that. And we know that as we make those groups larger, um, things get worse. And it's at the point where any sort of larger organization, bureaucracy, is the butt of, of jokes. I mean, Dilbert is an endless source of, of of amusement because of our apparently limitless ability to generate collective idiocy. Uh, and the question, the sort of first question for collective intelligence might be, how can we avoid <laughs> collective idiocy and just sort of break even? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, and if you've ever worked in large organizations, you, you know I'm not kidding, right? You, That'd be you, my goal. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, what I've been doing with my students, many of whom are here today, um, is developing something called sensible organizations, which is to try and move from essentially ad hoc way we've organized ourselves and come to re decisions to something that's more based on 
data, science, mathematical modeling, and so forth. And I brought a bunch of papers um, that maybe we could give them out. I don't know. I hate to disrupt things, but let's 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 do that. Um, so the key thing in the modern organization is that. Um, We've been trying to manage things by looking at email and memos and, and org charts and things. But we all know that the most important communication is face-to-face. -face. That's why you're here. That's why people fly long distances to conferences. There's something much more that happens face-to-face. -face. And typically what that is is that's the delicate, sensitive, contentful information. And all that other stuff is just organizing those contentful discussions. Um, so what's happened until just recently is that the stuff that really matters in every organization never makes it into any memo, never makes it into any digital store. It's essentially something that can't be looked at and can't be managed. The best we've been able to do is ask people, you know, survey questions and sociometric surveys and sometimes you put a bunch of PhDs in the corner to sort of take notes on what happened. But essentially most of what goes on is invisible, which means that we can't manage it, we can't organize it, we can't tell what works and what doesn't work. And the thing that's changed in the last couple of years is now you can measure things, this face-to-face, -face, this missing contentful stuff in real time, and you can potentially use this. So the particular approach we've taken, um, there are many ways to do it. You can actually do it with cell phones, you can do it in, in, uh, with cameras. Uh, the way we've taken it is develop a, a badge. It's a name badge. Wear it. It doesn't record your voice. Um, it doesn't record your words. It does pay attention to who you're talking to and when. And whether you're nodding your head when you're talking to them or not. So something about your body language, your tone of voice, who you're talking to, but nothing more. Um, and it does this <laughs> in some technical ways that I can get into if people are interested. But essentially what it's doing is it's recording that stuff that you get when you see somebody across a hall and you see people in an animated conversation. What does it mean to be animated? Well, using this sort of thing, you can measure that. And as an example of what we've done, we've gone into organizations. Like this is a German bank. This is something that we did with Tom's group. Um, it has six different, five different departments. Um, and this is a group that plans ad campaigns for mortgage products in Germany. And on the bottom, you see all of their email traffic during a day. And on the top, you see the face-to-face -face conversations. The thicker the line, the more conversation there was. So here they're planning, and the management is talking to development and all that good stuff. And then they deployed it, and uh-oh, it didn't really work. <laughs> and you see the customer service people in emergency conversation with the support people because it's all going to pieces. Uh, familiar? Well, this is the dynamics of that organization during an entire month. So when every, the email goes away, that's Sunday. And you see the pattern of communication between people. And you see that the email doesn't match anything like the face-to-face -face pattern of communication. And this is the information flow within the organization. This is the first time people have ever been able to see all of the information flow within an organization. So... What happens? Well, you can analyze this data, and it turns out that the thing that matters is not email, it's not memos, nor is it the face-to-face -face stuff in a modern organization. It's the combination of the two. And the reason is that email and face-to-face -face trade off against each other if you're not nearby. But if you are nearby, 
you get something that's gossip, essentially. People use email as gossip. So there's different modes of using electronic and face-to-face -face communication. And you know this. It's intuitive. We can actually measure it, though, now. And what we find is when we put the face-to-face -face stuff and the electronic stuff together, we can predict things with fairly good accuracy. So for instance, we can tell when someone's getting overloaded by looking at these two channels, and we can do something about it. We can say, uh-oh, you're in a bad situation. Let's put some more resources on it right now, not when you threaten to quit a month later. We can also measure the quality of group interaction in terms of their perceived productivity. This is automatically by looking at the pattern of interaction. So typically, for this type of a group, which is a largely creative group, if you have something where there are people that are bottlenecks, you've got a problem. <laughs> and so you can identify those and you can make suggestions in real time to change the network of information flow to make the quality of group interaction better. And that, of course, results in better collective intelligence. You can bring this down in other ways, too. So for instance, rather than think of it as sort of a big brother thing, you can think of this as a personal intelligence tool which collectively produces better results. So we take the badge, it has Bluetooth, it can talk to your phone. And what it can do is it can give you a sense of what's going on around you because people actually are often not aware of their social context. They get so caught up in the content that they lose track of the communication pattern that's happening around them. And so, for instance, we're building little displays that use this badge and use the, the phone, as work Tammy Kim is working on, to be able to alert people to problems like groupthink or polarization or other sorts of group dynamic problems in real time with the hope of allowing the participants in a conversation to better manage themselves to a better result. That's a type of collective intelligence too. One of the interesting things here is it works for distance groups potentially as well as it works for face-to-face -face groups. And the final thing I want to end with is work um, that I'll just allude to and not tell you is that you can begin to use this technology to make more formal uh, collective intelligence. You've all heard about prediction markets. This is where people essentially bet on results or have other ways of pooling their, their <coughs> knowledge to make predictions. And that's an important type of collective intelligence. But a real problem with that are the problems of what I call gossip and rumor. Basically, if you get a lot of people who have a hot tip and they all bet the same way, you bias the market. If you have lots of rumor going around, you can bias the market. Now, that's not intelligence. That's collective ignorance or collective mistakes. But you can tell what those sorts of things are happening by looking at the pattern of communication. You can tell when there are rumors happening. You can tell when there's gossip spreading and influencing decisions if you have a sense of the total communication going on within your organization. And we've done some initial experiments that show that by paying attention to the pattern of communication, you can generate far more reliable collective intelligence. So that's what we're up to. Um, Sandy, one, I have a quick question yeah. to clarify what you've been saying. It's hard for me to exactly understand this c distinction you're making between pattern and content. That is to say, if you can study the patterns, how do you know whether it's gossip or serious information since the patterns don't have a content? To, to do the collective intelligence part? 
You're well, to, to to read to read your you, you said that you can read your your uh, your graphs or whatever what is generated by 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 looking at the information flow by looking at the right. information flow passage you can you can see when gossip is. And what I'm so, asking so, is, how so, can you tell? So in, in cases like this, what you have to do is you have to have some history with people, okay? And you look at the pattern of decisions that people make, the pattern of bets they make over time, and you can correlate that with a pattern of communication. And what you find is you find certain patterns of communication correlate with having similar opinions, okay? So this is familiar to us. Is there's an in-group. They all sit around talking about something. And lo and behold, they all have very similar patterns of decision-making at the end because they've been talking about it with each other. Or there's a connector in the group, and the connector goes around and spreads a rumor. Well, suddenly all these people are voting the same way or betting the same way because they've been talked to by these people. <coughs> so by looking at these patterns of communication and comparing that to the, the independence of the decision-making of the individuals, you can figure out who's just going off the same meme or the same bit of information, and who has generally independent information that needs to be aggregated in a different way. Okay. Can I just add a quick perspective to Sandy's sure. project? The analogy that I like uh, to think about the project Sandy just described is the analogy with a microscope. If you think about it back in 1600, whatever it was, when Leeuwenhoek uh, invented the microscope, he was able to perceive things at a much more detailed level than it had ever been possible before. He could see germs and animals and all kinds of things. And that enabled whole new bodies of scientific research and scientific results to be developed in the fields of biology and chemistry and others. I think what Sandy is talking about is something equivalent to an organizational microscope. It lets us observe organizational behavior at a much more fine-grained level than was ever possible before, and therefore, we hope, opens up many more opportunities for scientific and managerial uh, results. What he said. <laughs> <laughs> so, so not too long ago, I was I would sit on the other side and always be skeptical of the people here <laughs> on this side. So I hope uh, as we start our dialogue that you'll you know come back and challenge and push push back to us as we as we sort of take on the expounding role uh, here. Um, I actually just stumbled into uh, collective intelligence and sort of these distributed innovation systems as I call them. Um, really, uh, as a puzzle, uh, about 10 years ago, I was working at General Electric Medical Systems uh, doing new product development um, and, and had a client in Montreal who refused to buy any of our systems and was like saying, you know, we've got everything that you're offering to us. We had this newfangled digital radiology systems uh, designed, spent a lot of money acquiring companies and also developing it in-house. And they said, I don't need anything from you. We've done this all in our community and by ourselves. And I was like, you know, we're GE, we bring good things to life. You know, this can't be, <laughs> this can't be, the, this can't be the case. So they invited me to come spend some time with them and I spent two weeks at them. And I was blown away. I, they had basically, uh, uh, were about 18 months to two years ahead of the engineering schedule that GE had put, put, put out for itself. And this was back in 96, 97 timeline. Um, and they'd done this basically uh, by leveraging the community of other radiologists and other physicists who were interested in medical imaging 
and had used open source technology at that time and they had basically leapfrogged whatever GE was going to do. And that was a real puzzle for me because, you know, having done engineering and business as an undergrad and then worked for a while at a large company, this model of people self-organizing and solving tough problems that were the purview of a large centralized R&D lab just didn't make any sense to me. And I sort of forgot about it and came to MIT to do a, a master's in technology and policy. And I was actually doing work in bioinformatics. And again, what I noticed when I was here in 97, 98, this thing that people were using open source and Linux. And again, I just couldn't, I couldn't understand it because I was so used to spending big bucks on buying workstations from Sun, you know, and here we were using commodity hardware. People were rolling their own distributions and, and solving really tough computing challenges by working in these communities. And I said, well, so I shifted focus of my research away from bioinformatics and into sort of this puzzle of, of communities and communities in software and started looking at open source <coughs> communities back then to make sense of this. Like, how, how is it that this, this model of organizing could compete against what has been well-established and well-studied uh, of these large centralized R&D facilities, centralized engineering groups solving similar problems. And as, you know, I was, I think, just very lucky to sort of see that, you know, when I told my, my, my computer science friends that I was going to be studying open source, they were saying, this is just a fad. This is not going to go anywhere. Why are you wasting your time on this stuff, right? They're going to get crushed. And I just had a, what I'd seen both in demonstration at Montreal, but then also here, was that there was something different about what was going on and that this had legs. And thankfully, you know, Mozilla took off and Linux took off and a whole bunch of other stuff took off uh, that, you know, my, my bets <laughs> early on have, have somewhat paid off. And the first thing I was always interested in, and everybody is, when, you, when you're sort of looking at this as an organizational form, is like, why are people working for free, apparently? And what's going on that, that motivates these individuals to participate? And there's been a lot of work in this area. Uh, and what we've seen basically has been that uh, in open source, which is, I think, almost a prototypical to some degree of a collective intelligence form uh, where thousands of people collaborate and participate, um, often doing small chunks of work that is stitched together at a higher level. And what we've seen has been that uh, there is a tremendous heterogeneity motivation. So we have the RMS, sort of the Stallman-like uh, Free Software Foundation people who really believe in the community and the moral right of open software and free software. Um, but then we have pragmatists who are trying to solve their own problem when they're working at <coughs> Amazon or at Orbitz and want to just get this problem solved. And for them, it's a low-cost activity to participate in the community and get a lot, lot back. And so we, what we've seen is, is this, this, this tremendous heterogeneity motivation. It's not just one reason why people are participating, but the fact that these communities can be agnostic about motivation, they don't care as long as you, as long as you do the work, makes them go a long way. And that actually provides us with some hints about where these things um, outside of the traditional organization take hold. So we, we need communities that have a participation architecture that can attract many different types of people. And then that also implies some degree of consensus around intellectual property. So what is IP? Who owns the property being produced in these settings? Um, and uh, again, in open source, we've got some clever hacks on ways to solve the property problem. But as we think about 
collective intelligence moving be into other other domains beyond software, the property issues, the IP issues will become front and center for us to grapple with. Um, and then uh, again, um, we have these issues of governance. Who has authority in these settings? Um, and Wikipedia actually provides a great example of governance because they have a very flat infrastructure, but each Wikipedia article is a war amongst the deletionists that are there and the inclusionists and everybody else. And these micro-governance issues are being fought off every day in Wikipedia. And it's, it's fascinating as a, as a researcher to sort of, sort of see this and sort of see how they actually come to consensus. And often they don't. Um, and again, that also, again, tells us how we need to think about um, in terms of, of scale. And finally, what we've seen um, uh, is that the software world, the open source world, has provided an inspiration to many other new forms of, of organizations emerging in different settings. So as Tom alluded to, uh, there's a company in Andover, actually, called Innocentive. It's an offshoot of Eli Lilly. And their business is to take science problems outside of the lab, R&D labs of, of, of firms, Fortune 500 firms, and then broadcast them to the entire world for a bounty. So they'll offer 30K if you can solve this problem. And in my studies of how this system works, what we've seen is that people that are successful at solving these problems are often say, uh, and we have good um, statistical significance that shows that they say that the problem they solve was not in their field of expertise. So they're often bridging knowledge domains. So a physicist solving a chemistry problem because they break the frame, they look at it very differently. Um, but the solutions they use are in their back pocket, right? So they take stuff that they already know, they're experts at, and apply it to a different setting. And again, we've seen the same kind of behavior back in open source where there's a tremendous um, asymmetry in costs and benefits of participation where the programmers that are participating, you know, I, I was a terrible programmer as undergrad. That's why I got out of that business. Uh, but there are people that, you know, that can write code, beautiful code overnight, which might take a team three months to recreate. And by enabling these people to connect with each other and letting them solve the problems, we can have this, this tremendous asymmetry in costs and benefits. We sort of see, again, the person solving it in a center problem typically spends about two weeks worth of effort, right? And the problems have been stuck inside of these labs for two years with major teams trying to solve these things. So again, we're trying to, the, one of the hopes of collective intelligence is to take these distributed and sticky pockets of knowledge that exist in the world and find ways to aggregate them um, for us. And one of my favorite examples these days um, is this t-shirt company called Threadless. Uh, and um, Threadless is an amazing business. I wish I had thought of, about it. It's basically an online t-shirt competition. They have a community of about half a million people. They submit t-shirt designs at the rate of about 800 a week. Uh, the community votes on those designs. They love it, hate it, one to five. The community gives a demand signal, says I'd, I'd buy it, right? And these guys come around, they pick the you know best scoring designs and produce about 2,500 a, a, a week of these designs and they sell out. They're on a trajectory to now sell a million and a half t-shirts, $20 a pop, you can do the math. Uh, they've received in the last five years 133,000 designs from 41,000 people and there have been 80 million scoring events. So you can imagine again how they've been able to completely change the, the notion of, 
of how a company and organization should work. We've thought that innovation and and marketing and sales forecasting were, were purviews of the organization. They belong inside the walls of the company. We spent a lot of money hiring the smart engineers to work for us. And at least in this trivial example of t-shirts, they've sort of turned that around and said we can do much of that work uh, in the community. Thank you. Uh, now, uh, I guess our last broad topic before we turn the discussion over to the audience, and I want to encourage folks to interrupt each other or at, or at least to add on. I do. Uh, uh, our last broad project uh, problem will be to talk about certain limitations that we see to the, to the, at least to the utopian discourse that surrounds collective intelligence. But let's begin with Tom giving some further examples for the work that, hi that his uh, shop is doing. Yeah, just really quickly, there are a bunch of projects currently underway in the Center for Collective Intelligence, but I want to talk about two of them very briefly and then others maybe will come up later in the conversation. Uh, the first is a project we call Collective Prediction. This is a project that involves Sandy and Rajan Prelek and Josh Tenenbaum and Tommy Poggio from different parts of MIT. The idea is to come up with better ways of having groups of people predict what's going to happen. So Sandy mentioned the idea of prediction markets, which is already a very interesting and often very effective way of predicting what's going to happen by letting people buy and sell predictions of things like outcomes of presidential elections or sales of products or uh, product release dates, et cetera. Those often do better than other methods like traditional market research or polls or whatever. But we want to try to generalize that to a much broader set of things that <coughs> people or computers can do to help make predictions, for instance, in such markets. Like if you're trying to predict whether a patient has skin cancer, you might want to have just someone evaluate the picture of the mole on their skin. That's not a prediction market itself, but it's a very useful kind of service to make that particular clinical prediction. So we want to create a bigger infrastructure in which all those things can happen. And we want to have agents participating in that, computational agents. So in many cases, it's possible for algorithms, even very simple statistical techniques, to do a better job of predicting than human experts do. Many kinds of projections of sales or uh, even uh, success of students in graduate school, it turns out that simple linear regressions can often predict those things better than experts reading complete statements and letters of reference, et cetera. So what we want to do is have agents making automatic predictions in these prediction markets, thus making the markets much more liquid and much more uh, useful for people. But and if the ca in the cases where the agents are doing a good job of predicting, there's no reason for the humans to even, even intervene. But in a situation where a human thinks the agent is leaving out some important factor, then the human is motivated to participate in that market, and if they're right, they'll make money from doing so. And so that's, we think, a very natural way of not having to decide in advance what people will do and what computers would, will do, but letting the division of labor emerge and adjust over time because you've got the right kind of incentives established. So that's the first project, the Collective Prediction Project. The other one I think is interesting is a project on measuring collective intelligence. Now, the word intelligence suggests something we know quite a bit about in humans. We've for over a century been measuring human intelligence with tests like IQ tests. And the 
the phrase collective intelligence suggests that there's a useful analogy there. And so in this project, we're going to try to exploit that more, more directly. The, even though I said at the beginning it's hard to define what intelligence is in any precise way, there is a precise definition in the field of psychometrics, that is the sub-branch of psychology that's dealing, that deals with measuring things. The definition of intelligence there is that thing which correlates with a very wide range of performance on a wide range of tasks. So it turns out to be a kind of surprising, if you think about it, but true fact that how well a person does on one intellectual task, whether it's mental arithmetic or knowing vocabulary or being able to do mental rotation of figures in your mind or a variety of different things, how well you do on one of those tasks is a pretty good predictor, not perfect, but certainly statistically correlated with how you do on a very wide range of other tasks. It also predicts your behavior not only on kind of tests, on laboratory tests, but it predicts your behavior in a variety of life situations, like how well you do in school, how well you do in many kinds of occupations. I was surprised to learn it even predicts life expectancy, statistically significant, not perfectly, but at a statistically significant level. So there's no reason in principle why this had to be true, but it turns out to be true of human brains, that there's a wide range of what we think of as intellectual or cognitive tasks that are correlated with each other. The question then is, is that true for groups of humans or groups of humans and computers? Is there such a thing as the psychometrically measurable intelligence for groups? That is, is it true that a group of people or people in computers that does well on one task will do well on average on a whole bunch of other tasks in some wide range of tasks. We don't know whether that's even true, but our project on measuring collective intelligence intends to first begin to answer that question. <coughs> is there such a thing as collective intelligence in this sense? Even if there isn't a single factor in, in individual psychology, that's called the G factor, little g is a measure of general intelligence. We don't even know if there is a single G factor for collective or group intelligence. Even if, if there is, we think that will be very interesting. Even if there's not, we think there'll be some sub-factors or sub-tests uh, that we'd like to know what they actually are for groups. And then we're especially interested in knowing what causes those differences and how to use them to make groups more intelligent. In the case of individual humans, you can measure their intelligence and use that to predict things, but it's very hard to change intelligence. We can't really reach in and rewire the brain or do anything like that. But with groups, it's relatively easy to change a whole bunch of things. How many people are in it, what kind of people are in it, what kind of communication they have, what incentives they have. So we think it's a very interesting question to, as to what we can do to a group to increase their collective intelligence. <coughs> which you might think of as their flexibility, their adaptability, their ability to do a wide range of things well, not any one single thing well. So those are two projects I think are particularly interesting. Others may come up later. All right, now the, the last issue I want the three of you to sort of meditate about, uh, uh, it's partly triggered, I think, by a, par by a partial sort of skeptical response I had to Sandy's project. Because it struck me as I was listening, Sandy, that boy, that sounds awful lot like we could describe it in a different way and call it a surveillance tool. Um, 
and it seems to me, and, and I mean, learning so much, who, who is the gossip monger in our organization? Who is the bottleneck who's causing, uh, and I mean, the information that you need to generate to really read your graphs also requires things that one might regard as invasions of privacy. So the broad question is, what are the limits of, of, of collective intelligence? The, discor- the, the utopian discourse that surrounded it has often acted as if there are no limits to what this wonderful new thing can do, that individual human creativity is now as old-fashioned as, as the printed book. Uh, and uh, so, so the question is, do you, guys, do you folks see limitations and... Uh, 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 are there, is there a skeptical side to your response to the whole collective intelligence so, tendency? Since, since you mentioned the, uh, the sort of privacy thing, I mean, that's actually why well, I didn't emphasize it. It's almost the core point of what I'm talking about because, like it or not, we all walk around with cell phones. Uh, cell phones know where they are. They can also have microphones. They know when you're talking. So your cell phone company knows a lot about you. And you can talk about uh, that being used in various nefarious ways. Similarly, most organizations or many organizations have name tags or little RFIDs in them. And, and one of the, the core topics we have is to look at this trade-off between privacy and uh, advantage. And the, the take we have on it is, is we would like to learn what it is that's of advantage to the individuals that they can make out of this information and how little of that information do we have to actually put collectively in order to get that advantage? In other words, what are the limits on uh, what, what changes in sort of traditional privacy things do you have to have to reap those benefits? And can you get away with almost no changes? Right? So uh, the, the vision that we have, and we don't know that you can achieve it, but given that companies are out there doing this to us already, <laughs> we ought to investigate it is, can you build feedback tools that provide personal reflection to the person and the only thing that's shared collectively is something that's aggregate and de-identified? If you could do that, then there's at least the grounds for some grand bargain between the, the sensor-based society that we've already become and um, the privacy that we'd like to maintain. And in terms of limits to this sort of stuff, of course there are limits. I mean, the, the, this is no panacea for intelligence. This is simply saying we have individual intelligences. We're very poor at pooling them. But we know some things about uh, what are the common errors we make. And if we can detect those common errors and feed them back to the individuals, then perhaps we can do a better job at doing the things that we already know how to do but now becoming more aware of the problem states that we typically get into. Just to respond to that, I think part of what's behind your question is a a kind of fairly widespread uh, utopianism or sort of magical thinking uh, that a lot of people have these days that, uh, uh, for instance, a lot of people who've read the book, actually a lot of people who've heard about the book The Wisdom of Crowds, (laughs) The people who've actually read it know that uh, the Surawiki, the author, doesn't actually say this, but a lot of people who've heard about the book think that what he says is crowds are wise and wonderful, and if there's any problem, just throw a crowd at it and things will certainly be better. Uh, He doesn't say that. It's certainly not true, but there are a a set of people afoot in the world today or a feeling (laughs) afoot in the world that, that there's something magical about collective intelligence. 
it's not magic. Uh, it's, it sometimes works well, sometimes it doesn't work well. I think it's actually far too complex a thing to answer with any simple set of do this, don't do that, or these three situations work and those seven don't. Uh, it's much more complicated than that. It's kind of like saying, what are universities good for? Well, they're good for a lot of different things, and you know, it depends a lot on what you need and what you want and which university and what you're using it for and a whole bunch of things. You can't answer it any simple way, but I think part of what we want to do is help put a more firm scientific foundation under the, the questions and the, the, the discussions about what's it good for and what's it not, in what situations does it work and which ones doesn't. Uh, I think one way of summarizing it is to say in order for it to work well, you need a way of collecting the right people and computers and you need a way of connecting them <coughs> in the right way. If you fail to do either of those things, then it's not going to work. If you don't collect people who know anything about the answer, no matter how you connect them, you're probably not going to get a very intelligent answer. If you've got a lot of intelligent people, but they're connected in a stupid way, so each one is out for themselves and nobody's trying to solve the overall problem, then no matter how intelligent the individuals, you're probably not going to get a very good collective answer. But there's lots and lots of examples of ways you can go wrong and things you can do to try to go right in both of those areas. That's Come actually in. the point of the stuff that I'm doing, right, is, is to try and uh, build tools that let you do it the right way by providing feedback to people. Yeah, if I can just add, um, so I, I don't think, you know, this is a universal solvent for most of our problems. I mean, I think it's <laughs> part of a portfolio of approaches that we'll take to try to solve some difficult problems. Um, uh, you know, speaking about prediction markets, I've done some work at a major search company where they have, uh, they, they use prediction markets to help them uh, make some decisions. So they try to accumulate the distributed knowledge of this large organization to help with managerial decision making. And what's interesting is that the, all the data shows that the markets are accurate and, and decisive over many, many types of, uh, of, uh, of questions. But the issue there is that managers don't want to use them, right? Managers, you know, that sometimes my school produces or Sloan School produces don't want to use these prediction markets. Why? Because managers have been geared to be the information hub for most organizations. They're the ones that know all the answers. They're the ones that keep tabs on all the workers. And if all of a sudden, if you can imagine the situation, you, you're saying that your product is going to ship by this date, and there's a market out on this prediction, right? And the market is saying this, and you're saying that. How do you ex explain that to the executive team, right? And so what we've seen are th is that there are actually limits, organizational limits, to thinking about how these types of, of collective endeavors, sort of intelligence systems can work. Um, you know, for instance, we don't yet have um, uh, a course at either at HBS or Sloan on community management, right? How do you actually manage a community? Like, what does Linus Torvalds do or what does Brian Billendorf do to enable the Apache community or the Linux community to work? We don't have those distinctions there yet. And when we ask the people, actually, even in these communities uh, about these questions, they themselves have, have some reflection but not, we don't yet have you know, proper mechanisms that enable us to think about community management. Uh, similarly, I think there's some technological issues as well. Um, we have a supposition that work can be modularized, designs can be modularized, right? And that, uh, that there, there, there's enough granularity in the work 
that in fact we can distribute the tasks amongst many people and then we can put them together. Uh, it works beautifully in software, but how would that work in drug development <coughs> where there's a lot of complex work to be done from discovery in the bench uh, to medicinal chemistry to trials? So if you want to think about an open source pharma perspective, how would that actually take place? So there are some technological um, barriers for us to think about. One of the hopes that we're seeing is that, um, and this is uh, my colleague at HBS, uh, Carlos Baldwin, who's done a lot of work on modularity, what she talks about is that most, most products have an information shadow. And maybe we can take that information shadow and put it in silico, put it in computers, do a lot of the simulation work in computers, and then go back into um, into into real uh, real you know printing of these things and then trying it out to see what happens. But again, <laughs> those things are are further apart. It works great with t-shirts because with t-shirts, if you see an image on the web of a t-shirt, even though it's a material good, you're basically sort of looking at it from an information point of view and trying to make sense of it. But again, if if I push the limit to drug development, it becomes more difficult. Um, and then finally, again, the scale and the limitations I think are also legal as well. Uh, I think the intellectual property uh, infrastructure and our perspectives about it is a, is a major question mark for us. We don't yet know how we're going <coughs> to allocate the rents, the profits that might accumulate from these types of, of, these, of these settings. Uh, you know, we see Mozilla Foundation and Mozilla Corporation as an attempt to try to make, make a balance between hiring people and having a community uh, and sharing the IP but, and the benefits that come from IP. But I think there's a lot of legal issues around what forms, uh, what legal forms of organizations will, will come together that can take advantage of this, especially outside of the traditional uh, closed organization. Thank you. We're, we're on the verge of turning it over to you folks. Get your questions ready. Let me initiate this process by asking a question uh, that, that uh, um, is uh, maybe half unfriendly. I don't, I mean, not that I don't feel great affection for all three of you, I mean intellectually unfriendly. Uh, I tried to imagine myself as a, a sort of, uh, as a, a member of the audience who knew nothing about collective intelligence and just came into sort of, just had heard the term two days ago and was really curious about it. And I think one reaction such a naive observer might have had is, my goodness, you guys are just talking about consumer applications, business applications. Is the best we can hope for for collective intelligence that we can sell more t-shirts in creative ways? Or what about uh, applications of collective intelligence in, the, in, in, in realms of culture and human behavior that do not involve profit and loss, that do not involve corporations? Now, I, 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 what I'm really asking you folks to do is uh, speak a little more broadly about this question. So I, I, have, I have an example. First of all, I think Wikipedia is clearly an example yes. of that already. Yes. But uh, one of the other projects I didn't talk about yet in our center is one that I think would fit the description you're giving. Uh, it's a project to attempt to harness the collective intelligence of thousands of people around the world to help solve the problems of global climate change. Now, if ever there was a problem that we need to harness as much collective intelligence as possible to help solve, seems to me that's probably one of them. And so we have a project that is trying to use several different kinds of technology to help people collectively propose and analyze plans for dealing with global climate change. 
Now, in particular, what we will probably focus on is government policies for dealing with climate change. Uh, markets are pretty good at allocating resources and encouraging innovation in areas where the right incentives are operating. But governments are not necessarily good at figuring out what incentives to establish in the first place. And in particular, here's a case where at the moment we don't have very good incentives at all to encourage markets to come up with innovative new ways of reducing uh, carbon emissions and so forth. So the, the core idea in this project is to use a combination of three different technologies. One is computer simulation technology, but in this case, massively multi-user computer simulations. So instead of just having a few people, experts at a place like MIT, go off and come up with some very elaborate and very good simulations and then tell the rest of the world what they mean, it would be sure nice if anybody in the world who was interested could look at the simulation and say, why is this thing here? And somebody should either be able to answer it or they should be able to try doing it a different way and see what happens. Now, there's no guarantee that everything that everybody does would be sensible, but one of the other things that we want to do is have to use technologies for collective decision-making, by which I mean things like voting and perhaps even prediction markets and other things like that, to let people kind of vote on the assumptions or the policies <coughs> that seem most promising or most accurate. So the stupid things will stay at the bottom and the good things will more or less <laughs> filter to the top of the lists that people have voted on. And then finally, we want to use technology for what's called argumentation so that instead of just having kind of long-winded, kind of confused mailing lists of people going back or, or even Wikipedia-like wars, we can put some more structure on that where for each issue, whether that's what should be the value of this parameter like the percentage of carbon that's emitted on the surface that ends up in the upper atmosphere, or that's one example of an issue. Another example of an issue would be what should the carbon tax be, 0%, 3%, 5%. For each issue, you can have a series of <coughs> positions, so it should be 0, 3, or 5%, uh, or, and for each position, you can have a series of arguments for and against. This is the evidence why I think it is this. This is the reason why that's wrong. It should be something else. So by structuring the discussions in that way, we think we can help make them much more effective <coughs> and less kind of, uh, kind of chaotic. So there's that's one example. There's some great examples. Uh, Sunlight Foundation uh, in D.C. has set up uh, Open Congress to really uh, open up what's happening in, in, in on, on Capitol Hill and is trying to enable citizens to both observe uh, what their representatives are doing and give feedback. So there's way... What was the name of Sunlight it? Foundations, Sunlight. Open Con yeah. Sunlight. Yeah, and they're, and they're really, I mean, really pushing the edges on, on thinking about sort of civil society and the role of citizen, citizenry in, in feeding back into, into Congress um, and Capitol Hill. Um, another uh, uh, great example in the arts is CC Mixter, so the whole Creative Commons world that has taken off where people are licensing their uh, creative expressions, whether that be music or, or writing, in a way that allows somebody to take that and, and remix it. And CC Mixter is a great example of people taking artifacts from the from that domain and making it happen. So we're definitely seeing that. And certainly, I mean, to some degree, uh, 
even though it can be very crass at sometimes YouTube and sort of the, the remixing that goes on within YouTube and how people get inspired by each other, I think is a great uh, harbinger, I think, of, of, of what, what, what's, what's, what's potential and what's available for us. So, so I have sort of three things I'd like to mention. One is a sort of at the very finest grain. Um, we've looked at applications of this sort of technology for uh, detecting depression. It turns out you can detect depression fairly accurately by looking at people's pattern of socialization and interaction. And the problem with depression is you're not aware that you're depressed. You just think you're a bad person. So, so I'm serious. This is, this is almost the number one killer in our society. It's the number one cause of lost days of work. And the problem, it's curable, but it's not detected. So by looking at that sort of patterns of behavior, there's hope for actually providing a reflective aid to people to be able to cure this. This is, this is a really interesting thing. So we've done some clinical trials already that are very promising. At a larger area, it turns out that you can use the same sort of technology I talked about to, uh, to detect what I would call societal <laughs> discord. So for instance, Nathan Eagle, who a student who worked with me, um, recently looked at patterns of communication, cell phone communication within the UK. And it turns out you can very, very accurately predict what uh, the UK rates as social integration in their different councils, the little sort of town centers. So you can tell what the UK government rates as social integration, so a strong measure of social health, by looking at the pattern of communication. A correlation coefficient there is something like 0.75. It's incredibly strong. And on this, the, the, the final thing I wanted to mention is you, you uh, mentioned the Legatum Center. It's a brand new thing here at MIT, just starting off. Something I created with Iqbal Qadir, who's sitting in the back there, I think. Are you still here, Iqbal? Uh, maybe he got off. Well, whatever. Uh, it's actually intended to be a collective intelligence endeavor. So its goal is to bring change agents from the developing world to MIT to think about solutions to the problems of their country to share those solutions with other people, and then go back and maintain a network among them to propagate the best solutions among these change agents in their country. So that's a precisely uh, uh, the sort of collective intelligence thing that, that Tom was talking about. It's, it's experimentation, it's communication, it's selection of the best solutions and propagation of those solutions. So we uh, just got a, a very generous gift, $50 million, we're going to have 300 such people here in the next 10 years, and we hope to come up with some really good solutions to poverty, health, et cetera, et cetera, uh, through that. So, It's now the audience's turn. I'm going to stand up so I can see the, you better. May I ask also that uh, when you come to the <coughs> micro, when you ask your questions, come to these microphones on the side and identify yourself for the, for the recording, for the, for the, permanent record that we keep of this event. But since I don't see anyone jumping up, I, I there, good. Is this on go. here? Yes. Go. Uh, Art Hutchinson with the uh, Cartegic Group, uh, our consulting firm. Uh, Dr. Mullen, you, you made a reference uh, I thought was intriguing to uh, the advent of the microscope. Um, sort of got me thinking down this line that, that was touched on a little bit later on about uh, the, the science of the small ultimately led to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and, and measurement uncertainty, changing of behavior. 
Um, so the question was, was a very general one, which is to what degree do we understand now uh, how technologies like the sociometric badge uh, affect behavior and, and what happens at the boundaries? I was immediately thinking about, you know, the the uh, interactions in businesses that take place on the golf course and then the bar and after hours and on weekends that are immensely important. But uh, I'm going to take my badge off now. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting question. What I think you're saying is that uh, these technologies are not just microscopes that let us see what's happening and what would have happened anyway. They're also, or at least in many cases would be, interventions that change what's happening. Um, I think that's an excellent point, and I think that the, one of the questions it raises is how can we use them to change things in ways we think are good? Right. So how can we use them in ways that are not invasions of privacy but that people like and that make things more efficient, et cetera? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, the, the, the reality is that this type of thing, regardless of what I do, is happening because more and more of our life is being monitored and more and more of it's being mined. And we have to understand where's the good and where's the bad. The particular case you mentioned is interesting because the sorts of things that we measure turn out to be very correlated with things that we know as charisma and things we know as Asperger's and, and autistic spectrum behavior. People are very different at their ability to be sensitive to their social environment and, and to act in an appropriate manner. Uh, and so one of the interests in this type of technology is to give people a reflective aid that lets them train themselves to be more competent at this type of thing. Uh, so you might take off your badge, but you might do it only after you've spent quite a bit of time buffing up your uh, ability to be uh, socially appropriate. And that has, as I said, sort of a medical side to it, uh, but it has a big ramification uh, for society because one of the things it does is it makes us uh, aware of what I would call the mechanism of charisma. Why are some people more persuasive? It's not because they're smarter. Uh, it's because their style, the way they present things, in many cases, is so compelling. Uh, I personally would like to build something that immunizes people against that. Mm -hmm. um, I've been in enough situations, <laughs> you know, boards of directors where there's a few charismatic individuals, and, you know, it, it just is a disaster. Uh, I think we all need a little badge that starts flashing red <laughs> when, when we start getting our brain manipulated. <laughs> Over here first. Uh, Hi. Left. Hello? Hello. Hi. Um, I have a, uh, two unrelated questions, both of which start with the letter P. The first one is physics, and um, I remember about maybe 10 or 12 years ago, Ralph Abraham, I think it was, uh, very famous, uh, um, one of the creators of um, chaos uh, physics um, at Santa Cruz, wrote a book on, hi on history uh, where he looked at the long burfications of and waves of history. And um, I was wondering how chaos uh, is affecting your, uh, your, your various studies, and is that... Uh, uh, part of what you're doing. Uh, my second one is pedagogy. And how do you train people or how do you teach people to actually become uh, citizens who can actually, uh, you know, do this work and do this high-end material and work with each other? Um, and so those are my two questions. So uh, on, on pedagogy, uh, there's a great quote about Wikipedia, which is that uh, 
uh, it works, it's not supposed to work in theory, but it works in practice. And I think what we're going to see is that the practice is going to lead theory and is going to lead pedagogy, that we're going to learn from people actually doing it and from there try to extract out what's going on. So I think, I think we're still, you know, we're still just right now just cutting the edge of like what is the pedagogy around how to, how to behave in these things. I don't I'd, know, Tom, I'd like to encourage the audience, uh, members of the audience who know about uh, collective intelligence projects of various kinds, especially those that are not corporate, I'd be happy to hear from some of you. I know there's some classroom, there's some things going on in the classroom that make use of wikis and, and, and new ways of em, em, empowering students by having them create wikis. And I, I, I don't know a lot about that sort of work, but I know it's already <coughs> relatively common in universities. Yeah. I mean, with regard to pedagogy, you know, I, I agree with what he just said, is that, you know, I think that uh, we have, for the last few centuries, been um, uh, bought into the Enlightenment vision of an individual mind that's separate from all the others, and that we are in conscious control and rational. And in fact, I think we're much more a creature of our social environment, and that the collective opinions and interactions determine what we think and what we do far more than we like to admit. And we have very little theory for that in part because it just hasn't been what we focused on. We focused on the interior and not the connections. And so maybe one of the good things that will come from these new ideas is to focus more on the connections between people and how those influence what we think, how we act, and we will develop a, a pedagogy around it and a greater sensitivity to it. So if you want a response to the first part of your question, the chaos part, uh, I think the connection you're making is that chaos theory, at least in part, deals with emergent behavior. It deals with coming up with theories of what happens when you have a lot of more or less independent things, or at least mostly independent things that kind of interact in ways often only locally, but out of which emerges some kind of coherent behavior. I think the way I just described that also applies to many interesting examples of collective intelligence. So collective intelligence in that sense is a, an example of a kind of phenomenon that chaos theory has analyzed. Uh, I think collective intelligence, by using the word intelligence, focuses more on what you might think of as the cognitive aspects of things, the intelligent aspects of things. Sir. Hi, my name is uh, Rob Darty. I'm kind of an entrepreneur slash bohemian. <laughs> I have a, a question for you, and it has to do with... Um, Social constructs since electronic communications expanded have obviously expanded as well. Um, the ability to pass information has become a lot easier to disseminate to large audiences. Um, but with that, there's also uh, an important barometer in social interaction that's gone away, and that's accountability. Um, within a social structure, you're accountable for the things that you say because the people who you're saying them to know you, um, and your interactions with people are all based off of the social recognition of you as an entity. Um, the internet's created a lot more anonymity. So when you're looking at something like this from uh, the correlation of intelligence between people and especially between people and computers, um, without accountability being a factor, how is it that you can see ways to keep mass stupidity from happening? Um, how can you look at ways of looking at that and, and recognize when those things happen um, I think a lot of us are feeling a lot very jaded in a political way. Everything that happens, people just kind of say anything, and it's supported by something that's listed on the Internet. 
Um, so how do you factor that into the equation? I, I think the, uh, I mean, I think it's a double-edged sword in the sense that while we see these concerns around the lack of accountability, we also see that collectively there's been some great episodes of people figuring out, you know, people that are breaking the rules or are, are, um, are not being are, are, are brought to account. So a good example that comes to my mind, again, uh, you know, just knowing the software space is when um, the code for Half-Life 2 or 3 or whatever got stolen from the servers. And uh, Half-Life is a game, multi massively multiplayer game uh, with a huge community. And it was the community effort, people working together, who said that this is actually bad for the community, that they were able to help the police and FBI figure out where the theft happened, who was the, who was the person, the group behind the theft. So, so on the one hand, you could hide in the lack of accountability and get away with it, but if, you're, if you apply the same type of principles to holding things to account, I think that it can actually, it can, it can be used as a way for accountability as well. But I think it, 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 you know, it vacillates back and forth, and I think it's very much case-dependent from so my point of view. I'd say if I'm understanding the question, I think the question comes from what Mitch Resnick here in the Media Lab would call a centralized mindset. In the centralized mindset, which many of us have even unconsciously without thinking about it, if there is a problem, the way to solve it is to put someone in charge to make someone responsible. And that actually works pretty well in a lot of situations. It's kind of the basis of a lot of hierarchical organizations. But I think a key point of what we're talking about today is that there are limits to the centralized mindset or to the applicability of the centralized mindset. There are <coughs> a lot of situations, not all by any means, but there are a lot of situations where good things can happen without anyone being in control without anyone being accountable, without anyone being responsible. Wikipedia is a pretty good example of how good things can happen with very little accountability. Most of the people who do things there are really not accountable at all in the sense you mean, and yet very good things happen. Um, in a sense, you know, free markets are an example of that. There's no one who's really accountable for how cotton gets distributed among people in the world. But somehow markets do a pretty good job of doing that. So I think that uh, in a sense, the question comes from a point of view which is limited. Let me add one other thing to that, um, which I think plays off of this. So when you asked your question, it made me think about um, sort of what the, uh, what the lack of anonymity, sort of the centralization sometimes does. So examples are, you know, the way people do credit card fraud is they look for unusual behavior. So they're collecting bits of information and concentrating them and characterizing, stereotyping you to be able to say, oh, that's an unusual one. Let's go get it. Uh, and that's a pretty scary thing. Uh, I mean, obviously it might have its good parts because it keeps you from, from stealing things perhaps, but uh, anonymity is not the way it looks, right? There's all these traces of behavior and they have good things and bad things, and, and I think people insufficiently appreciate how much of that's in the real world now. So two examples that I know of that are on opposite sides that are very similar to that are um, in India, um, they have a very large terrorist problem, 
thousands of terrorists per year uh, by their definition, and most of them are caught by cell phone records. Now, the cell phones are not actually things that are registered to the person. They're, you know, uh, pay-in-advance cards. But by looking at the pattern of interaction and location, you can figure out who people are. And they claim 80 to 90 percent of people are caught within a week or so of a terrorist incident by that. On the other side, people are looking at detecting <coughs> outbreaks of things like SARS using exactly the same methodology. Uh, when you suddenly see everybody in an apartment building not going to work, it's time to get out the, uh, the medical police and go see what's happening because that's not supposed to happen. Uh, and that could be a really important thing for an entire society. So this notion of centralization is a really complex one. It has both good sides and bad sides. And it's, it's often the centralization that's the scary part, uh, at least in my uh, thinking about things. But Alex, you know, what, what's again, what's implied in what you're saying is a totally surveillance society, a society so full of surveillance at every element, in, at, at every level, that we will even know whether the residents of apartment buildings are going, are reporting to their work on time. If this is what we need to do to have collective intelligence, I vote no. But well, the question then is, is, is how will, it, how, if that ups the odds that your children die by 30 percent, are you still willing to do it? I mean, it's a realistic thing. We're not, we're not screwing around here, I mean, right? I, I guess I would quarrel with the, uh, at least I would yeah. want to question the premise here. I mean, parents can tell when their children are ill. Neighbors can tell when Influenza their children are ill. a lot of people, I, regardless of what Maybe so, but are. I mean, do, I, are, do we really want to say, okay, the uh, some centralized agency ought to be, the, ought, ought to be some, some, some sort of uh, locus but, but, for... But that's the centralized thinking again. Right? Well, someone has to look at the data, though. No, right? that's not true. That's absolutely you don't have to draw conclusions. Absolutely not true. That's the centralized thinking. If everybody locally notices that their neighbors are not doing something, that's not a centralized. It's a collective thing. recognition. It's, it's collective, a collective recognition. That's yeah. the type I of see. thinking that we need to move I to see. to avoid these right. big brother problems. Because the big brother stuff is really scary. It certainly is. I mean, you know, it's less scary in this country than it is if you look back in, in history or you look at other societies, but it's really scary. So, so we have to find ways to not have that. That's my point. Just to build on that a little bit, I think one of the things many people worry most about in issues about privacy is not actually just loss of privacy. It's asymmetric loss of privacy. If you know about me, but I don't know about you, then I'm definitely in a worse position. But if you know about me, I know about you, everybody knows about everybody, then many of the things we worry about with invasion of privacy aren't actually problems after all. Uh, I grew up in a small town where <laughs> most people knew a lot of things about al almost everybody else. And there were good things and bad things about it, but it's certainly not any kind of Orwellian nightmare. It's just a different attitude about privacy. So I think many of us who grew up in urban or suburban environments with a certain set of expectations about privacy have kind of limited intuitions about what it's like to have symmetric lack of privacy. Certainly a great literature though, Tom, of people, of, of small town uh, authors who write about the horrors <laughs> of being <laughs> confined in a small town environment yes. in which the, everybody knows what you're doing. Right. So there are good and bad things. You know, I, I, I would say read Winesburg, Ohio. And yeah. you'll I grew up in a small town, but I'm glad I don't live there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so but the there, there are nice things but, about small towns but, too. But the thing that we're doing here is, is we're saying 
there is a real need to re-examine the basic contract and expectation around privacy and the commons. There are some great things you can get from pooling information. There are some terrible things. Some of them feel good and human. Some of them feel very unhuman. And what, uh, at least for my agenda, is I want to explore that space so we can figure out which things feel like human society still, but give us some of the protection that we might want to have or some of the efficiency. I think that it may be possible to do things <coughs> about some of these disease outbreaks around global warming, about many things in this sort of cooperative way that's not centralized, um, but we have to work that out. Yeah. Right? I, I think what David is worried about is, is, that, is that the tendency to centralize is so grounded in most of us that, that, that decentralization is actually very counterintuitive. That when we think that this, this notion that we have a problem, let's put, somebody, let's put, put our men on it, right, and let, let him go after it or let her go after it. I mean, I think that this, the, the, the intuition most of the times is to centralize. And it's not common sense yet for us to be, so there's only one Jimmy Wales who came up with the notion of Wikipedia, right? And now that's right. sort of taken off. But the te technology for wikis has been around for a long time. And so, I mean, again, I think that it'll take some time before a generation grows up sort of thinking that the, the better way to organize is to be decentralized. And it won't always be the case. Yes. But, but I think, in fact, in, in my book, The Future of Work, I make a very detailed argument for why I think it's going to be more often the case yes. that the market share of decentralization versus centralization is going to increase. So, uh, Kevin, identify yourself. My name is uh, Kevin Driscoll. I'm in the Comparative Media Studies program. I would say I am not alone in being surprised at the number of people who choose to write and edit encyclopedia articles for fun. And so <laughs> what makes it surprising that uh, Wikipedia works in practice is that, that initial expectation that it wouldn't work in theory. So you I come to this. You might be one of the first ones to be that way. Sorry? You that. might be one of the first ones to sort of be surprised by the, the older view that why are people doing this anyway? No, well, he said he had the older view originally. Did you have the older view or no? I had the older view. You did, okay. And I don't think, I would say that Jimmy Wells had the older view when he did Neopedia or whatever the, the uh, expert Neopedia. version of his earlier encyclopedia projects were. So I come to this uh, forum with an education background. And there, I think that free and open education, a collective development of curriculum materials, seems like, in theory, it should work because all of the work is happening. The patterns of, of collective development are already in place in teachers' lounges and all across different schools in the nation. Yet, in practice, it's having a lot of trouble. So, um, Sandy mentioned something that, that triggered some thinking here for me, which is that in that community, face-to-face -face is how you develop trust. And so it's very easy to collaborate with other people in your department or other people in your institution because you have some layer, some foundation of trust. I think in conversation, most teachers would say that they would be very willing to participate in a collaborative development process. However, in practice, it's hard for them to transgress that expectation of face-to-face -face trust. So I'm interested to know if you have examples of similar communities that are based on that kind of interpersonal trust, yet share the values of a, of a collective development and how they've been able to push past that problem. So, so let me uh, give, <coughs> I think, what is a very salient example for, for learning, which is 
had a master's student last year that was interested in education um, and concerned as you are about curriculum and, and so forth and was from central India and wanted to do something there. Uh, so in central India, most of the schools are, that are actually <laughs> anything like effective are private. Uh, but, but parents have no way of assessing the, the value of the curriculum. And there's very limited resources for curriculum development. So what he's done is set up a standards body that takes the best practice schools in the area because curriculum is always local and spreads that curriculum and best practice to other schools. So it gives the schools a certification that they can present to the parents as a, a means of reliability. But it also introduces a competition between the schools to produce the best curriculum and then to spread that. And the hope is that that will ratchet up the quality and the uniformity, uniformity of quality of the curriculum over time. So it's what you said. It's a collaborative development, but it's at a different level of granularity, right? Can uh, I ask you to, sorry. Can I ask you to clarify that just one yeah. minute? So is it... Is the curriculum leaving the walls of the private school, or is it remain yes. at the intellectual property? No, no, property? It, leaves the, it leaves the walls. Okay. So, so th what they are is they're a transport and competition mechanism. So they're, they're the machine that allows the sort of genetic material to spread to other ones and the more successful ones to prosper. Okay. That's essentially what they've done. Now, you know, it's early days. We don't know how successful they are, but it's, but it's very precisely a collective intelligence thing and it's around education and curriculum, but it's at a different level of modularity than the, the thing that, that you did. Um, on the other side of what you said with trust, I think trust is exactly it. It's, it's, uh, or, or perhaps more generally sort of social integration, uh, something of that sort. Um, so for instance, when we looked at all the groups here in the Media Lab, the research groups, the highest performing groups were the ones that had the best um, measures of social integration. <coughs> And you can tell the social integration from their pattern of cell phone usage. <laughs> so, so, so cell phone I, use. Yeah. You People know, behave <laughs> differently <laughs> when they spend time with each other, when they trust each other, when they work cooperatively with each other. We leave these traces of behavior everywhere, and uh, they relate to some of the things we really care about, like. How do we relate to our work group and how productive are we as a consequence of having a, a better level of social integration? But if, if you could identify, I, I see that you can identify, or at least I, you claim, <laughs> and I accept your claim, that you can identify uh, the healthier or the more productive groups as against the less productive groups. So my question is, is there anything in the, in the, in the apparatus and the technology uh, or the strategies you're developing that would let you explain why that's true? Sure. Yeah. What are the differences? Well, the differences have to do with, um, as you said, essentially with trust, with trust and, and willingness to engage other people, of your tendency to engage other people within your group. So, for instance, if you, uh, I mean, just to, to be very uh, uh, cartoonish about it, you know, if you only talk to the same three people and that's all you ever talk to, uh, there's not a lot of information and, and, and critique and, <coughs> and so forth in your group. And you're not going to have a very productive, satisfying experience along many dimensions. On the other hand, if you have a lot of friends, if you feel open, if you feel trust with the people that you work with, there'll be a much more diverse set of interactions. The pattern of discussion will be broader. And you can see that. 
and that's indicative. It's not you know one-to-one -one causal necessarily. I'm not claiming that, but but that's characteristic of groups that have uh, trust, openness, uh, high social integration. So I was going to generalize your your question a little bit. Um, to me, I think trust is important, but there's actually a bigger thing of which it's a part that's even more important or more useful in thinking about these things in many cases, and that is motivation. Basically, what would motivate the teacher to contribute to this or what would motivate the person to contribute to Wikipedia, et cetera? Trust and kind of social connections to other people is one thing that sometimes motivates people to do things, but there are others too. In Wikipedia, you know, you might just like the actual act of contributing to the encyclopedia, whether you trust the other people there or not, you still are motivated to do it. Um, I mean, economists certainly tell us that a lot of people are motivated by money, and that's true. And so whether you trust someone else kind of deeply, if you at least trust them enough to <laughs> do a transaction with them, uh, then that may be enough of a motivation to get you to do something. Uh, I have another example, kind of like yours, of a, of a, a failed example of collective intelligence. It's one that we were involved in here. It's not a complete failure, but in a certain sense, it, it was a failed example. Uh, uh, we were involved in a project to write a business book Wikipedia style. So uh, it was a joint project with MIT Sloan, Wharton School, Pearson Publishing, and a consulting firm called Shared Insights. And um, we, uh, we were inspired by the idea of Wikipedia and said, why can't you write a whole book that way? The name of the book is We Are Smarter Than Me, which is a kind of attractive idea. And the project got quite a bit of publicity and enlisted over 4,000 people on the website, people who registered and, and contributed in some way, or at least potentially contributed in some way to the book. So uh, that all sounds good. The part that didn't work was that even though 4,000 people registered, only a few dozen ever actually contributed anything. And frankly, most of what they contributed wasn't very useful. <laughs> so in the end, what happened was that a team of professional writers was hired to basically write the book, uh, <laughs> drawing, in part, drawing in part on some of the things that people had contributed to the site. So a, bo a book was written. It's about to be published. So in a certain sense, it succeeded. But as an experiment in having a community write a book Wikipedia style, it didn't really work. The question was, why do you think you had 4,000 right. people and then so few ended up being yeah, delivering yeah, okay. productive Right, I'm glad you asked that because that was actually the point of telling the story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the thing where I think we failed was in motivating them. 4,000 people were interested enough when they read about this project to try to see what was happening. And in order to see anything, you had to register on the site. So they went and looked, but they weren't motivated enough to actually spend time contributing. Now, I th there were a few people who were motivated enough, uh, but many of them, I think, probably didn't have the knowledge or the writing ability or the sort of insight uh, to, to actually write a business book that would be very interesting. Some did, but I think some d many didn't. I think of the 4,000 people who registered, there were probably plenty of people who had the ability to write a business book if they had been motivated enough <coughs> to spend the time actually doing it. But I think we failed at that first step of collecting 
the right people, that is the people with the ability and with enough motivation uh, to do what needed to be done. If we had gotten past that point, I think there was a second step which we also hadn't really figured out, which was how to manage the interdependencies between the different parts of the book. That's relatively easy in the case of Wikipedia because the interdependencies are only within a single article for the most part. The, the interdependencies between articles are much weaker things like style and philosophy. If you have a whole book, a business book, there's a much higher expectation of integration and consistency and kind of flow and so <laughs> forth between the different parts. And we had some ideas about how to manage that, but I don't think we had worked them out well enough, and I don't think – I think we would have had to do more work to get that to work even if we had motivated enough people. Yeah, and, and still on time, I, th I think you, you definitely have this motivation problem as to why would somebody participate in the first place or what would motivate that teacher – to you know, disclose their uh, their teaching plans for their science curriculum or something else like that. I think secondly, and if there's no sense of community amongst teachers that where they could identify themselves, like we have an open source, or like people say I'm a hacker and I identify with this community, um, that matters. I think secondly, uh, also important, and I think it's actually to some degree a substitute for trust is evidence of performance. So in open source, in the open source world, we have the village idiot in each community, right, which is a compiler. It tells you how good your program is, how well does it work, does it compile or not, what are the problems, right? And the reason we have such heated debates in Wikipedia about articles is because there's no arbiter, objective arbiter of quality. In software, we can do it, right? Uh, but in, in other settings, we, we don't have those things yet. So having an evidence for performance becomes sort of a substitute for trust. Um, and sort of thinking about if we're going to be in a distributed world with many people participating, many strangers participating, and we don't have the time to build trust in the traditional sense, what are some substitutes? And again, we have to think about what that means for us along the way. And then uh, Tom's work, early work on interdependence actually goes back to it as well because how closely tied the work is, my work is with yours, and how much my work depends on your work is also very important. Hi. Uh, my name is Dev Sengupta. I'm a first-year student here at Sloan. And actually, my question kind of ni is a nice segue from the book you referred to. It's uh, related to this idea of collective versus intel uh, individual intelligence. So if we think about the Internet as a form of collective intelligence, you know, with your ability to search vast, vast troves of data and access it quickly, you know, what's the impact of collective intelligence on individual intelligence? Are we collectively becoming dumber by the fact that <laughs> we need to recall less? How is that going to impact us as individuals as we think about what defines intelligence in the future? Well, of course, it all depends on what you mean by the definition of intelligence. Uh, most people would not define intelligence as the number of facts you know. So the the fact that you don't have to remember all those facts if you can easily find them on, on Google doesn't mean you're less intelligent. It doesn't mean you're more intelligent alone either. But it does mean, and I think this is a key point, that the combination of you and Google is much more intelligent than you alone were before. Um, so I think that's the, 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 the main answer I would give to your question. I mean, some people worry that you know, if you give kids calculators and they forget how to do arithmetic, does that mean they're losing something really important? Um, you know, <coughs> I, I'd, I'm not a big fan of that argument. I think um, 
if you really, I mean, you need to understand how arithmetic works, but memorizing every single multiplication fact, if you're genuinely assured of having a calculator with you all the time, probably isn't worth the effort. Suppose you carried it further and asked about, say, grammar checks and spelling checks. The same thing? That yeah. I mean, if there's a real risk that you're going to need to produce the behavior and sometime when you don't have the, the mechanical prosthesis, then maybe you better learn to produce the behavior by yourself. But if you're genuinely assured that all the times you really care about producing the behavior, you're going to have the mechanical prosthesis with you, why bother to learn to do it yourself? I actually think that the question illustrates uh, the sort of brainwashing we've had uh, about the character of intelligence, that it's an individual characteristic. Um, I mean, people don't have all the facts in their head. One of the major phenomena we have is called transactive memory, which is that you know who to ask to find out things. That's a major store of the things that you know. It's called tacit knowledge in some cases. So it's actually the thing that makes organizations, families, other sorts of things go. <laughs> it's not that the stuff in your head. It's that you know where to go find it. And the where you find it is usually other people. Um, you want a quote for that? Sure. Uh, Herb Simon, many of you may know, uh, a genius, uh, won the Nobel Prize in economics and wrote seminal work in half a dozen other fields, including psychology and sociology and organization theory. Uh, he once said, at least reportedly, most of what I know is in the heads of my friends. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely true. And, and, and you know, we, um, the rhetoric, however, around intelligence and, and competence is not that. It's that it has to be between your ears. And that's not true at all. It's certainly not true of any sort of high-functioning manager or other sort of social... Uh, socially socially connected sort of a person. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it, it, there's, there's a sort of mis misunderstanding of what it is to be intelligent. A lot of it is this sort of transactive stuff. Um, also, there's some really interesting things that are going on in the field of psychology now. I, I just thought I would bring this up. As, uh, you know, there was a study that was in science recently that compared uh, how good people were at making decisions uh, uh, for complicated situations under two different conditions. Uh, one condition is you are allowed to think about it and then make the decision. And the other situation is you were not allowed to think about it. You just had to make the decision. If you were not allowed to think about it, you were very much better than <laughs> if you were allowed to think, if you had to think about it. What class of decisions? It's for complicated uh, purchasing behavior, um, selecting items that have many, many different features. Right. It so clearly depends on the kind of behavior that well, you're talking about. Well, so they, they looked at different sorts of decisions, and for simple things, <laughs> thinking about it was, was clearly better, right? As the thing got more complicated, your intuition, your recognition of what feels right uh, carried the day rather see, dramatically. See, that's the model for professors giving grades. <laughs> they shouldn't think they should just do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From the first impression. Right. <laughs> well, and, and that's, you know, also the work of how students grade professors, right? <laughs> right. So from the first 30 seconds of right. your appearance, not what you said, yeah. that correlates extremely highly with your final rating in the course. I always wear a jacket for the first 60 seconds just to be safe, <laughs> <laughs> and then I take it off. Over here. Okay. Just to summarize, it sounds like
like you're saying, in, the, in a networked environment, the value of recall is near zero. But there are other forms of intelligence that, that I guess it'll, that intelligence itself is being redefined and if it were as ever characterized by recall. Thanks. I don't think it's being redefined. I mean, I think it's always been, as Sandy said, a, a, a collective, transactive memory-based endeavor. It's just that we can see it more clearly in this kind of a connected world. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and I wouldn't say it's And new forms of it are possible yes. now yeah. in this connected world. Uh, Federico Lucifredi from Harvard and Susan Novell. When I was looking at um, Professor Pentland's data, I was obviously um, wondering about the um, Big Brother implications, but there is also another side that I don't think was addressed, which is that once you take, you start taking decisions of that on that sort of data, there are tangible actions or rewards attached. What prevents people from gaming the system? If you're using an un unobtrusive way to gather this data, like the tags that you've been <coughs> using in your particular experiment, what prevents, to use the Dilbert metaphor, what prevents Wally from going around humming to everyone in sight to be flagged as the greatest communicator in the company, <laughs> immediately <laughs> subject to rewards or lesser workload? Uh, this is a very managerial question, but obviously once you're attaching decisions to this, uh, people are going to start and look at how they can game the system. And if people uh, already game the system, right? People send out lots of emails so that they can look like they're paying attention. People walk around <laughs> regularly and shake hands and act very positively so that they give a different sort of impression. Um, you know, this is really just observing those behaviors and then relating back to people how those, uh, the consequences of those behaviors. So if you do X, then you know, that has these consequences. So you should think about it. You can still choose to game it. Uh, but uh, if you're gonna put all that effort into it, why don't you do something that actually turns out to feel good and is productive? You, you have to tie to performance, right? In the end, you can observe these patterns of interactions, but if it's not tied to some observable outcome, good or bad, then <coughs> all you have are these patterns. And I think, I think Sandy's work is gonna help us to look at the, uh, the behavioral patterns but then tied back to performance. I think that's actually a good point of a bad way of using some of these things. Uh, one, one bad way of using some of the data that Sandy is talking about would be to say, we're gonna reward you for intermediate measures like <laughs> how many oh, people you talk yes. to. Yeah. Uh, a better way of doing it, I think, is to say, we're gonna reward you for you know, how many products you sell. But by the way, if you'd like some coaching, we've noticed that the people who sell the most are the ones who have the most contacts with other people. And so it might well help you to increase the number of people you talk to. We're not saying we're going to pay you just for talking to people. We're still going to pay you for selling products. But here's some advice that might help you do that better. There's this notion of a reflective aid so that you can it's very difficult to know how you come across to other people. It's very difficult to remember how you behave because you're so concentrated on the facts and the day-to-day -day sort of uh, requirements of what you do. So to be able to reflect on how you actually behave, how you actually come across to other people <coughs> is useful. And then in the sort of typical thing that we've done is we've also allowed people to anonymize their data and then compare themselves to other people 
who are higher productive, happier, as again a reflective aid. If you behave this way, people who have higher job satisfaction are a little bit different. They do this. Well, I'm going to tell you what to do. <laughs> it's your choice. I'm Michael, and I'm unaffiliated. Um, you haven't talked much about managing and rating contributors, and uh, I wondered you know, what you felt about that, whether it's a good thing, bad thing, whether it should be done by moderators or contributors or the consumers. And then the second question is systems uh, figuring out what they should know but don't. Uh, for example, on Wikipedia, you look at different entries on similar people, and some are short and some are very long, uh, obviously, because you know someone took the time or was interested. Uh, obviously, the system should be able to figure out that, you know, hey, I should know this about this person. It could perhaps go and figure out who might likely even know the answers to these questions. Do you know if anything's been done in that kind of thing? So the first question was, what should happen about rating contributors? Like I, this is kind of in the context of Wikipedia, is that right? Yeah. So uh, Wikipedia, frequent contributors to Wikipedia develop uh, a real reputation among other frequent contributors. Uh, so that is, I believe, clearly a motivator for some people. Kareem could tell us more about that. Yeah, I, I think I think there's mixed feelings about rating people because as soon as you start to rate, we're back in this question about gaming it, right? So if we're gonna, if if, if what matters is ratings and how frequently you contribute or how frequently you are posting on the email list, then that's going to skew the behavior very differently. I know in, in certain open source communities. You know, the software people can easily can easily look at an email list. You can easily look at, at CVS commits and sort of say, this person's obviously doing much more in the community than this person at the bottom. But in fact, when you look closely at patterns of, you know, my pet interest of innovation and novelty, where novelty is coming from, in fact, much of the novelty in open source, and we have now some evidence also in Wikipedia, that in fact is coming from peripheral players, people doing one thing and that having a big impact. <coughs> and then the frequent contributors are polishing it, integrating it, and so forth. But that germ of that one idea came from that one guy that sort of did something and then went away, mm -hmm. or one gal that did that and went away. But as soon as you were to, if you were to start creating incentives, once you have ratings, you can have incentives, you can have rewards, you can see where that leads you to, right? You can just select on a behavior of, of numerical behavior, not on like what matters to the community. So I think, I think there is, there is a tension here. I think underlying your question, there's something about authority. Like who has authority to sort of say, if I make this edit in Wikipedia, <coughs> right, that this should stand over some Yahoo who knows nothing about innovation, right? And these, and these, and these debates about authority are again at the heart of like Wikipedia as well, which is they're, they're always trying to figure out like who has, do we look at credentials or not? The fact that somebody's a professor at MIT, does that count more than an 18-year-old kid in, in, in Transylvania. And those things, again, are confounded when we sort of think about ratings and... Well, and I don't know that I'm quite thinking of it that way. I was more thinking of, like, if, you know, if you post something and it's, you know, out of left field, should perhaps the group be able to look at it and go, you know, you know, and, so and so almost you vote have and say, not on the persons. Mechanisms that are cooperative 
Yes. Right, for rating. Uh, and that cures some problems, but uh, at least my sort of impression, uh, and probably you know more, is that those things tend to have a short time horizon. So, you know, the, the, the first time somebody said, you know, F equals MA, that was really from left field. But it's pretty good, <laughs> right? Um, so things that are really novel tend to get destroyed by, by uh, cooperative rating. So peer review in NSF is a perfectly good example. If it's really innovative, NSF won't fund it. Uh, if it's sort of part of the ongoing discussion, you've got a good chance. But do you really want to limit yourself to funding just ongoing discussion? Don't you want those radically new things? And those often take decades to prove themselves <coughs> out. So uh, in that form, anyhow. So I, I don't know that there's a good way no, to, no, no. to solve this, right? Nobody's come up with one. There was a second part to your question. Yeah, that, that was about systems figuring out things that that they should know but don't know. Well, Wikipedia does that by having pages that say, this is a stub, please contribute. So they do that to some degree already. Again, it's very much interest-based in the sense that you know, there's, nobody, there's nobody paying the volunteers to contribute to Wikipedia, right? And Wikipedia is driven by the idiosyncratic self-interest of the volunteers that are participating. And so you can't, you know, th and this is the sort of the thing that you know, with, with Linux, there's always this complaint about the fact that Linux never scaled to, to more than four processors or eight processors. And everybody said, well, that's a problem of Linux. No, it's because most of the developers at the time didn't have supercomputers in their basements to try to scale Linux up. And so when larger firms showed up with the resources, Linux scaled fine in the same kind of a distributed fashion. But I, it's to sort of say the, the saying always is in these systems, like if, if you have a problem, if you have a bug, right, fix it yourself. We invite you to come and fix it yourself, right? And that's the best, the, that's the best way to participate. Hi, my name's uh, Stephen Wishkin and I'm with Latitude. We're a consulting firm. We work with uh, media companies on strategy and content. And I'm interested in a couple of things. The first is if you've dealt with any of you on the sort of difficulty of finessing the individual visionary piece that we see in media often ag against the sort of mass audience needs and the sort of collective wisdom and intelligence that's of, of the desire of the audience. And in particular, you know, the, the common idea of artistic vision versus sort of a, a more common vision, whether it's in the arts or whether it's in business. That's my first question. Um, and I'll, I'll hold my second until you sort of dive into that. I think you're asking the question of can a group have an artistic vision, or is that something that's the property of the lone artist? Is that what you're asking? That's, that's part of it, or how, how does the, the field of collective intelligence attempt to start to deal with the fact that we know that whether it's in, in business or, or in any field, uh, art or whatever, that, that there are people who do have a vision and, and have a strong vision that is artistically or otherwise manifested well, and having that pulled back by, quote, the masses or the audience in some larger way, and how to deal with that constant tussle. So I have a, some thoughts about it. Um, the um, one question people sometimes ask, which is kind of related to the question you're asking, though not exactly the same, is sometimes people say, well, can a group ever really write a good novel or a good piece of literature? 
isn't that necessarily something can only be done by a single person. In part, I think the rationale behind the question is great literature requires sort of deep integration. The kind of things we didn't figure out how to do on the We Are Smarter Than Me book are the kind of things that a single individual, while it's not easy to do, a single individual can do often much more easily than a whole group of people because one person can communicate with, with themselves better than people can communicate with each other. Um, so part of the answer I give to that is uh, it's certainly possible to create great literature in a group. In fact, um, probably the best example of that is the best-selling book of all time, which is the Bible, written by a group. Uh, in fact, uh, written in part as a, a written record of stories that were repeated by people. Uh, in fact, legends in general are in some sense literature written by a group. Mm -hmm. the, and part of how the group works is that things keep getting repeated and repeated and some parts stick and other parts don't and eventually over time the legend comes to acquire a kind of resonance and polish that I believe comes in part from the fact that it was kind of tailored and refined over many, many retellings by a whole group of people. So I think that's an existence proof that it's possible to write great literature by a group. There's another question, though, which is, is it possible now to write great literature with groups in some new way? You know, is there something about the new technology that's available to us and the way it could be harnessed that there is actually a chance of harnessing groups of people whose minds are so closely coordinated through the technology that, that it's now feasible for them to come up with kind of artistically insightful, elegant, beautiful, and coherent products that wouldn't have been possible before? I think that's an interesting question to which we don't know the answer, but the answer is certainly not no, or not obviously no. I'm always struck with um, the fact that well, my perception that everything that people do is a dialogue with other people. So when you said great art, that implies an audience that appreciates it. And in fact, art is a dialogue with the people that critique it and respond to it. So it is, a cons in one sense at least, a, a collective artifact. It's, it's, a, a, it's a resonance within a community. It's not the individual or the thing itself. Um, and then, of course, the, the classic sort of example, which is weak in some ways, is the enterprise of science, which is a collective thing, which is, in fact, a story. I mean, uh, you know, all this business about truth and all that sort of No, science is a story. Uh, that resonates and has uh, a critique that relates to how well it worked out in the real world. Uh, but in fact, it's a story, and it's clearly a, a collective one. Yeah, I would just add that, I mean, I think if when, you, when you look at the history of many artistic milieus that have popped up, it's always been groups of people working together. So when you look at French Impressionism or other, other sorts, that people are always trading techniques or ways or perspectives together. Uh, that, that, that the artists come out out of this, this setting of people that are free, freely <laughs> revealing their knowledge back to each other. 
I think I think there's a question in here about how much can you s typically those groups have been six to ten, maybe twelve, fourteen people or so, but now it's like can you scale that up to a hundred, to a thousand, to ten thousand, and then where does the where does the individual artist fit in with in a in a setting of a thousand? Will a thousand swamp out the one person? And I don't have an answer for that, but I think certainly at the low scale, we, we, we've always seen that uh, rarely does an individual come out of nowhere. Right? It's always in this setting of people working together and trying to make sense of the world and coming up with a new new perspective. Applied to entrepreneurship or anything Absol that's yeah. beyond you, you classic see. art. Yeah. Uh, my second question is whether you all and any and anybody in the field that you know of has dealt with collective intelligence as it manifests in different kinds of activities, that is, among which might be gathering intelligence, as Wikipedia does, and posting it, uh, making decisions, uh, executing decisions, which one would imagine that the collective intelligence manifests differently and more or less successfully in different kinds of endeavors in any kind of organization. I don't know if you've dealt with that or not. I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, something like Wikipedia, which is a gatherer of information, has a, a different manifestation of collective intelligence than some, a business that needs to make a decision and act on it. Like a prediction market. For instance. Yep. Um, and I don't know if there are sort of learnings <coughs> already in terms of how collective intelligence works and works in which ways better uh, in those different kinds of areas. Let me encourage brevity. One last question after this answer is done, we have to stop. My sense is that the question is too complicated to answer in any simple way based on anything we know so far. Yeah, I, I think we're still early with our research. <coughs> Tom, Tom Center might have some answers for us in, in a while. <laughs> Final question. Hi, good evening. Uh, Marshall Vale. I used to manage a uh, major MIT open source uh, software project. Uh, first, there was a, a comment about a uh, question about using an education on uh, collective intelligence, whether it's being used pedagogically. Um, my wife teaches a freshman seminar here at MIT for students to uh, how they use wikis and blogs together to collect that and, and improve their academic uh, experience. But that's kind of I would say it's very it is early on. Um, I to to uh, um, Dr. Malone, uh, I went to the uh, HBS speech for the um, a gentleman from Shared Insights who uh, talked about the We Are uh, Smarter Than Me book, and his list of ahas about it was um, uh, very reflective of my experience in managing any open source software. It was interesting to see the list of. Uh, kind of assumptions about how the collective intelligence would just solve some some of these problems and uh, that the open source community uh, on the software side had to deal with, such as usually having a core group of people to kind of push most of the, the work kind of forward, someone to sort of champion it. Uh, there are interesting lessons that we should, you know, uh, in probably in, in Krem's research to pull out of that to, to make sure that uh, it isn't just sort of assume you get the community together and, and then, you know, step three, profit. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, on one one thing, uh, I was very curious to see about the um, uh, how do we motivate people in, in contributing and seeing that sort of uh, the networks they represented with the social badges. Uh, one of the things that's successful about open source is that the accountability is very open. We're leaving breadcrumbs, as you commented, in an open source environment. Um, it's uh, it's easy to reflect and see who the good performers are. 
as a manager in my current role, uh, that research you were doing with the bank and the, the social networking and uh, seeing that uh, that flow of information and ha having as an aid for performance would be great as a manager. But I was very curious if in your experiments you turned that information around to the entire organization and made that open and let the members of the organization uh, self try to reflect and address it down and the community level as opposed to the managerial level? Well, the only way we've been able to, um, the way we've proceeded, which works best from a number of points of view, one of which is buy-in of the participants, is people get to reflect on their own information first, and then they're able to contribute that in an anonymous way to a group information that everybody has available. Okay, so including you can see what your manager does, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, or what typical managers do. And it's a complicated thing, right? We, we, I don't claim to have it all worked out. Um, but people find reflective aids to be sufficiently valuable that they're willing to participate. If you can see yourself as others see you, if you can reflect on what you do relative to others, that's something that excites a lot of people, I mean, if you think about it. So providing that as the, the base service and then allowing people to opt in to a more general thing uh, <coughs> seems to be a way to move forward. And then there's a lot of questions about exactly to how do you anonymize it, da, 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 what do you measure? One of the things that, uh, um, that is perhaps very interesting at the um, uh, earlier spring of the CIO symposium here at MIT, there was a topic around personnel and hiring in IT organizations. Uh, and that there's a trend to get people who are more uh, aware of their social connections. I've certainly had to deal in my career with people who have no ability to self-reflect <laughs> or don't want to. Yeah. Um, this is putting perhaps if the measurements are in place, you're going to give more weight to people who are more self-reflective, more aware of their social connection as perhaps uh, potentials for higher performers. Interesting implications there, usually when corporations are very just results and don't care how they get there. Well, you can think of it as a training aid, too, right? I mean, you say to people, you know, people who are aware of these things, you know, have uh, better success over the long mm -hmm. term, are happier, things like that. Here is, uh, you know, sort of what seems to be your situation, if you want to think about that. Again. I interestingly, um, by looking at how people talk to each other during interviews, not what they said, mm -hmm. but that sort of first, you know, minute or so of, of, of interaction, you can predict quite accurately who will be hired and who won't be <coughs> hired. It comes across very quickly. It's independent <laughs> of, you know, qualifications, what they said, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks. We've come to the end. Thank you very much.